Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. Mike DiFilippo. Kevin Mazza. I'm Anna Ryan. Just Master Cola. And today we're going to talk about uh, cricothyroid uh, airways and surgical airways. So the first question that we have to talk about for these type of airways things is generally speaking, when you're going to place a surgical airway or a uh, needle cricothyrotomy, it's because you have a failed airway. Is that, can we kind of agree on this? Yes? Yeah. Well, sure. I want to I argue That's about theory, the idea guess, of right? a failed airway. <clears throat> okay. Um, is it a failure to establish an a, a, a patent airway in a patient? So, yeah, so I think the it's more of a semantic argument where you're failing to intubate the patient or you're failing to place a supraglottic airway and maintain airway patency. So I think that's kind of the theory of the failed airway. Because it's kind of like when uh, that the Miracle on the Hudson thing was like, it wasn't actually a crash, it was an uncontrolled water landing. <laughs> like, all right, <laughs> it's fine. That's what they called it? <laughs> yeah, that was actually like what... liberal BS. <laughs> No, but <laughs> that's I, it. so no it's one not ever fail snowflake. Yeah, so it's not that it's necessarily a like I, I, like I said, I think it's it's splitting hairs to say that it's a failed airway over something else. But generally speaking, if you can't intubate a patient, you can't put in a supraglottic airway and control their airway. That's when someone will be a candidate for a, either a needle crike or a surgical airway. I, I agree. Um, you know, this is one of the procedures that's probably a once in a career, once in a lifetime thing. It is very low frequency. It is very. Uh, high stress um one of the things that you know it's not technically difficult but you have to be able to do it and you have to be able to decide when it needs to be done um the idea about the failed airways and and if you can go to a lot of different classes you can go to a lot of different people and talk about these things um and that that we do mention that and i think for people that are who have trained for it who are comfortable and proficient with it we don't have the impact on it with that. That term doesn't have an impact on us as it does with newer people or entry level medics or people who are just learning the procedure. You know, first of all, failed airway, you know, means you know, there's a psychological, I think there's a psychological hang up there that we equate that with we've failed. So I think it, and again, it, it, I maintain it's a semantic difference, but in, someone who's a candidate for a surgical airway is just going to be a situation where you can't intubate and can't oxygenate the patient. Right. It's that simple. So if it, you can throw in an, an acronym like CICO, um, CICO, I think it actually tends to work better. Phone, than saying, like, front of net a- neck access. Right. You yeah. Know, all so those f- front of net ac- neck, neck access, access is an awesome phone. That sounds more like a colloquial term rather than like. Right. And crikes are a huge thing in the phone med world. We're not the only people. I mean, there's. Of I think not. every. I think every medical or emergency medical pre-hospital podcast has probably touched on this subject at least once. Of course. Well, I mean, it's because it's a very, it's not necessarily a low yield skill to know, but it's a low practice skill. So this is the kind of skill that you'd have to know about it because there may be one time that you're going to run into a patient who is a candidate for it. Right. Now, part of the reason I, I tend to think, and I'll, I'll put this to the panel, that we don't actually see this done a lot is I think there is a lot of fear among providers to perform either a needle or a surgical crike. I would agree. What I do you agree. guys think? I disagree. I, I, I know maybe because Kevin and I were badasses, but oh I don't boy. think we were ever afraid, at least me personally speaking, of doing a crike. I just think there's a lot of different ways to manage an airway, and I really think that true, quote-unquote, failed airway is very, very, very rare. Right, and I tend to agree with you. So I don't it is, and, the, and the data does tend to support that. I, I don't right. necessarily think it's a fear. I just think like the patient that absolutely needs a, a surgical airway is very rare. But there is an effective filter to it. It's almost, you know, and, and I've taught it, you know, I, I've taught some of the classes and, you know, a, a, about it. 
um, you know, we, we did it as part of, you know, I did it as part of competency training, um, at some of the places I worked and, you know, the, the, the fact is, is that there is a reticence about it. And I can remember going back and, you know, it's instructor specific and thing, you know, you, you can, every person has an individual experience, but I remember being in a class and they said they were teaching RSI and the instructor goes, well, you know, if you get to this point, you're basically putting your, your card on the table, your certification on the table. Cause you've really screwed up at this point. But don't we do that for a lot of things too? <sighs> but should we? No, absolutely not. But I'm saying I think that's this is one of those procedures where sure. we say like if you do it, you'll lose your cert. I don't think that's valid. It is invalid. Then it shouldn't be a procedure that's in our arsenal. Right. Exactly. You know, would you be more likely to lose? Here's here's the way I I try to explain it is: Would you lose your cert if you had a tool that was at your disposal that you were trained in how to use it and was in your scope of practice and you did it and it wasn't successful, or would you lose your cert if you if they knew and the finding was you had a tool you were supposed to be proficient in it or be able to do it. You couldn't for whatever reason you, or you chose not to, and you had a bad outcome. I think the latter would give you more of a chance to say, Hey, you know what? You've got an issue here. Well, I think lack of doing something you're trained to do in a situation where it needs to be done. Isn't that like the definition of malpractice or Neglect. Some, neglect. Yeah. It's neglect. More well, than it is, else. but there's there's a lot of people. That, you know, there are paramedics out there that don't that have shied away from certain aspects of their practice. Sure, I know of paramedics who want RSI. What do you Why? mean? Why? They're afraid. So what do they do? Because bag a patient and run. They either what? let their I, bag a patient. I don't know. I don't know what they do because oh. their partner will usually perform the RSI procedure and intubation, but. Oh, so someone someone on the team would do it. It's not right, there's but there's maybe a partner who absolutely refuses to. Oh yeah, there's, there's take on the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Sure, right? Because at least in the state of New Jersey, there's a hundred percent QA, and it's the chart your chart seen by like four different people between your company and the state because it's a highly regulated procedure, and they're just afraid of the ramifications should they fail. But right. aren't the ramifications for not doing it worse than if? Fail. Oh, that's the point Ed and Dan are making. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> failure to failure <laughs> to open up an airway or failure to maintain an airway in a patient is one hundred percent fatal. We know that. Yeah, someone give the rhyme. What is it? Watermelon, watermelon. Spit, spit, spit. spit, spit. spit. You don't, you don't have, have an, an airway. airway. You don't have poop. Shit. That's not. That doesn't rhyme. Yeah, we have an explicit <laughs> doesn't rhyme. Tag. It's good. That was <laughs> the joke. Uh, Why watermelon? I don't know. Because you don't spit know. out watermelon seeds. seeds yeah. Spit and oh. shit rhyme. They do make seedless watermelons, though. So now, they so don't. That's a lie. I will they not do. have they any. Do. Of no, they Get your goddamn liberal they agenda out of here. There's seeds in them. I don't care. I don't know. That's what a real watermelon has seeds. So here's the point. I think here's the point we're trying to make. If we want to call, you know, paramedics have traditionally prided themselves on airway management. It's one of the things we lord over nurses. Well, we can intubate. You can't. If we have this skill and if we, you know, have the the, the airway management toolbox, the advanced airway management toolbox in in our, you know, in our, our, our arsenal, don't we owe it to their patients? Don't we owe it to the profession to have all the tools and be able to use them functionally. And, you know, if you're going to be doing like RSI, don't tell me you do RSI if you don't practice this. Don't tell right. me that you do advanced airway management if you are you can't place one of these devices or you can't do this procedure. Well, and in a lot of places, too, it's actually a requirement that you have 
a surgical airway as a backup or at least a, a cricothyroid um, thyroid airway right. before you can have RSI for this exact reason. Because <clears> if you're in a situation where you actually can't get a patient RSI'd, you've paralyzed them and they just you can't intubate them or right. oxygenate them, you have to access their airway somehow and it's going to be through the cricothyroid. Sure. Airway. So that's, those, those are kind of the big things behind it. And, and that is a big thing. And right, if you're running a procedure like RSI and you don't have a surgical airway, obviously you're doing it wrong. So one of the issues that comes up with this, and we were talking about kind of the, uh, the psychological and effective differences uh, and barriers that medics have, is there's a, a fairly um, well-known reference to uh, the quintessential podcast, FOMED podcast host, Scott Weingart, that the will to do this is harder than the actual procedure. So around the table, is it, do we think that we might be concerned about actually participating in cutting someone's throat and placing an airway and that's more the issue or do we think that there's a training component or is it kind of combined i think uh, personally i think for me i don't have a problem doing that because i do a lot of things that would if you look at it from a completely edict point of view as a non-medical professional seems kind of barbaric right so for me personally cutting into someone's throat doesn't make a big difference but there's a certain level i think of mental preparation for oh that this patient needs a surgical airway it's time to start like running through something you don't do very often. So there might be a little of anxiety just saying like, okay, just don't forget something. This is kind of like you're shooting your shot here. This is there's no oh man, surgical already failed. Better put in the king tube or whatever you know superglottic device you have. Right. So there's a little little added pressure that would go into it, but I mean, hopefully as paramedics we all perform best under pressure. I think it's kind of a combination of the two of them. We kind of react to this kind of airway like we do pediatric care. We don't practice it enough. We don't see it a whole lot. So when push comes to shove of it, I can, uh, Kevin, I love you. But if it's going to be one of those things where like, you know, paramedics should operate well under pressure, we're kind of human beings to the end of it. So if I haven't seen this a whole bunch or I'm nervous about something like that's going to factor into my performance. Oh, I mean, yeah, no, I think just to defend myself, I think I'm, I'm somebody who I'm does well. I'm attacking you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to? Though? I think I think a lot of Fight people, in public. a lot of people fancy themselves as good under pressure. And truth is, yeah, a lot of them are human and they aren't. Right. So you're snickering. That's a good point. <laughs> no, just the term fancy themselves. Into oh, oh a, child. a bunch of fancy feasters. Or is that better? Fancy feasters. Wow. <laughs> really? Okay. All right. That's cat food. Yeah, <laughs> Jess. That's good. What am I getting? I don't know. Oh. Are you next? <laughs> I don't know. I I don't have really an opinion because um, I kind of skipped the paramedic stage of medicine and went from EMT to nurse. So we don't do airway management unless you're an MICN. Like I, I don't even have the ability to place like a king tube or a superglottic. Do you think so you should as a nurse? Uh, yeah, because what happens when you're, especially as an ER nurse, is what happens when, you know, all of your ER docs are tied up with people who are either being intubated or critically sick, and then someone new comes in that are that isn't intubated. I think we should at least be able to place some kind of superglottic airway to maintain their airway. Okay. So, are do you in, right? your, in your experience do you find that? Your nurses are precluded from doing airway management just because there's so many extra resources at a hospital, or is it just a an oversight in training? I think Good it's question. both. I honestly think it's both. I think it's an oversight in training as far as why should someone holding a bachelor's in medicine who can insert a tube into someone's urethra not be able to insert a tube into someone's airway and help them breathe? Mm. Like why? Yeah. Why is that? Well, there's respiratory therapy. There's no urethra therapy. There, yeah, there's no urethra <laughs> therapy. <laughs> Page UT stat. <laughs> but wow. I, I mean, I think also the hospitals kind of think, well, why should we train every single person to do this if we have 
you know, respiratory therapists and doctors who can do it. So why should all the nurses know how to do it? Well, I mean, it's a... And it's... I think that's okay. the theory, in but... I, no, I agree with you. In parts yeah. of the country, a superglottic airway is a BLS skill. Why isn't it a nursing skill know, in it's an amazing, emergency situation? It? Well, and it's that's, amazing. that's a whole other educational level debate because we certainly we have skills that EMTs should do and can't do and mm-hmm. skills that medics should Agreed. be able to no, do I and agree. can't do. And that's, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. Right, but... So one of the, th- the realities of this type of procedure, a surgical airway, is that on a long enough timeline, this is a skill you probably will have to perform at some point. And one of the more important things is to reflect that it's not actually reflective on your failure as a provider mm. to have to do a surgical craig. D- a, a patient's airway failing is not necessarily your fault. It's usually just secondary to the pathology that they present with. So the classic situation would be someone who is a hanging victim. Right. right? So they have this very significant uh, laryngeal trauma and they just have a lot of edema around their airways, so you can't intubate them. That is a patient that is usually the candidate for a surgical crank, right? So these patients, when you get there, that entire situation had nothing to do with you, right? So you're the one that's going to have to fix it. So Yeah, or unrecognized difficulty. You know, you get in, we've all had these cases where we go to intubate somebody and we get in to take, a, you know, to look, and we recognize some, maybe the anatomy's wrong. Maybe there's, you know, maybe this it's stiff. Maybe there's you know, indicators of difficulty that we didn't see from the outside. And now we have this situation and now we can't get them ventilated and we can't get them oxygenated. You have to do it. You have to realize just like an ACLS algorithm or a PALS algorithm, this is the end of the road. Right. It just has to happen. Um, you know, and I, and I, I explained this when um, I was I was teaching some senior medics how to do this in a class. And, you know, there was I could just tell that palpable kind of hesitation about it. And I said, so I went back to an old, old school and like senior medics who are listening. You'll remember this. I'm like, OK, who took the old ACLS classes like pre 2000? Eh, a few hands go up. And I'm like, OK, who remembers Bertillium? Oh, Bertillium. And Bertillium was a medication that was we're not going over your thing with flatliners. It's a featured medication in flatliners. I'm, it would just stop. That's all I'm saying for that. We'll do that later. I think I have an <laughs> uncle named Bertillium. But. <laughs> The, the point was, was is that joke. Bertillium was at the bottom of the VFVT algorithm in the old school ACLS. Right. Okay. So I said to them, I said, had anybody ever at any point in Megacode given Bertillium? And hands went up. And I said, okay, did any of you fail that station? All the hands went down. I said, why? They're like, well, that was the algorithm. So I said, this is the same thing. All... All a, all a cricothyrotomy is, whether you're using a percutaneous or an open technique, you have reached the end of the airway mal- management algorithm. You don't have any other options. The patient needs an airway or they will die. Right. And this is what you have to do. And I think <clears throat> that will to do it, it's not that you're looking to do it on every patient, but you should have that in the back of your mind that, hey, look, I've gotten to the end of the checklist. This is where we have to go. Well, and that's where preparing for a job comes into play, right? Whether you're talking about mental modeling so. or whatever else, when you're responding to a call, even if it's like like traumatic arrest would be kind of the, the good example, right? Where you're going in like, I know this patient has arrested. I know there's potentially an airway compromise. You're going to have to psychologically get yourself into a place where you might actually have to perform this procedure, which is not always the easiest thing to do. It's something that you have to kind of like walk your way through, but there's a lot of variables to that. So let's talk about the different types of uh cricothyrotomies that can be done. The first one is going to be a percutaneous crick. So Dan, walk us through that. So when we talk about a percutaneous technique, what you want to remember is that we're using a needle or we're using some kind of sharp introducer um, to get into the trachea. 
okay? Think just like a big IV, okay? This is a, we're just putting a needle into a, into the neck in the midline so it gets through the, tr- the cricothyroid membrane, gets into the trachea, and then we either introduce a thin introducer over that, inside that needle, or some things have, some techniques, uh, some products have almost like an over-the-needle catheter, and it'll just slide right off into the airway. Um, <clears throat> this is where, like, I think surgical kind of hurts this procedure, because whether it's an open technique or a closed technique or a needle technique, we have this idea that it's surgical and that it needs to be, you know, we look at what the OR is. It's clean, it's sterile, everything's draped, everything's properly out, everything's ready to go. It's a very stepwise process. It's not really surgical because we're not doing sterility here. We're not doing, this is not a permanent fix. This is going to be a temporary thing, um, whether it's percutaneous or open. But the idea with the percutaneous, I think some of the advantages that people say is that it's it's a little less invasive, quote unquote, to a scalp than a scalpel. I don't know Come if on. you've ever if you've ever seen some of these things. Yeah. They're, well, how big are these? Needles? Oh, they're honking bigs. So like we'll talk one one I think is almost like a ten or an eight gauge needle. Yeah, they're massive. And so how is that less or invasive? The, than the smallest the one I think out there is probably like a fourteen. Having seen several trachs in the OR, they're very. Not simple to do, but there, there are very few steps. Everything's pretty well laid out as far as anatomy goes. Everything's pretty easily recognizable, and it's I don't know. It's just it, it, percutaneous is just a brutal way to do a trach one and two. I, I don't think I would ever listen to someone say it's less invasive than surgical. But I mean, that's that is, that's what they that's what they sell. That's what the manufacturers sell to these things that they're less well, invasive. The, the manufacturer less selling it doesn't make it. True. I mean, that's a silly goose. But I can. So here's the thing. And and just I'll get back to you yeah. real quick. But one of the things I can, if they're going to sell it as less invasive, if your options are you see a, a needle that's essentially the size of a chest decompression catheter, or a scalpel, I think most medics that have worked pre-hospitally are going to gravitate toward the needle because that is what they've seen before and that's what they're accustomed to. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Mm. Now I'm not. And I'm not again, right or wrong. That's what I tend to think. Now, so we've actually just. We're we're passing around a picture now of an actual percutaneous needle. Jess, I'd love to hear your reaction. I I just don't understand how <laughs> it's less invasive. I just saw a picture of it. And Is I there a banana for scale? I don't understand how no. it's less invasive. It literally looks like a piece of sharpened bamboo that you're going to pierce someone's throat with, and they go, oh, now I'll thread something even bigger over that. Oh, Jess, it's so invasive it violates the Geneva Convention. Wow. wow. Where, where, my, I, where are my poly people at? And, <laughs> I mean, is that really a well, better way? Like you're, No, it's not a better way. Well, the, there, are, there are studies that indicate that these types of techniques are not as easily done um, as an open technique. Uh, they do take sometimes take longer. Um, there's a couple of studies in the, the older techniques where you would use a needle with a wire, almost like a Seldinger technique, like doing a central line. Um, I think they compared that with an open technique and, uh, they found that it was, it took a lot longer to do. Well, yeah. These are all variations on a theme, but the same idea is we're, we're, we're taking this and instead of putting a scalpel in the hand of a paramedic or a nurse, we're making it a needle stick. It's a really big needle stick, but it's a needle stick. Why? Because of the shape? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's just, it's just a needle shaped scalpel that you're stabbing someone with instead of 
gently slicing. Well, right, and that kind of speaks to <laughs> and the, it kind of speaks to the silliness of why that's there's a not a bad point to make. No pun intended. Uh, Ah, <laughs> jokes oh, are funny. No, but I, I that. Mm. So, the, the mm. here's some other advantages of these percutaneous techniques. So we've got the idea down. They're generally they are all multi-step processes, but one of the nice things are is that they're generally self-contained. They're all in one tray. Uh, they're really easy to hand off to somebody. Uh, when you open them up, they generally have everything you need to get the job done. Here's the downside. They're really expensive. These things are scorchingly expensive. Um, you know, hundreds of dollars per unit. Um, now, you don't use them as much, but they're a lot more expensive than a scalpel, a bougie, and a 6.0 ET tube, which some people use as their crate kits. And to be clear, it's places. also it's also a required expense if you're running RSI. Correct. In in mm. In our state, that's true. Uh, so you have to have some po- some way of doing this, and it has to be a commercial kit. Right. So, you know, there is a cost involved here. One of the other things is, you know, here's the thing that, I, that gets me with these kits, uh, these percutaneous things. They all have their own unique kind of proprietary way of doing it. They're all gadget-like. And, you know, for me, if I'm going to do this once, and, you know, I mean, I'm not going to sit there like, yeah, I teach this stuff. I'm supposed to know how to do this. But if I was a brand new medic faced with a can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario or a massive facial trauma where the only way the patient's going to get an airway is by me doing this gadgety thing with like seven or eight steps, I'm really going to feel less confident. And I may not do it. Or I may not, I may try something else or I may not feel that that's something that you can do i think that is a downside to the percutaneous techniques um and these steps are not familiar in stressful situations and we all say well we competency on them competency once a year and doing it on a a piece of rubber is not the same thing as being competent so and here's the other thing too if you're going to place a percutaneous uh crike in somebody there's a fair to good chance they're just going to get a shyly placed surgically shortly thereafter anyway Mm -hmm. yes yeah, I mean, why would Fair they enough. Yeah, why not? Not. <laughs> I mean, you left a hole there. Yeah. You're yeah. just buying time. <laughs> yeah. If you're doing a percutaneous, they're going to get something else bigger in there. So that kind of leads to the next question where <laughs> instead of doing a percutaneous technique, doing a surgical technique. Now, again, we as EMS providers, we tend to like things that are kind of fancy, all enclosed, are kind of gadgety, right? Like, oh, I got a big needle. It's a syringe. It's all one thing. And boom, I'm done. But as Dan mentioned, the issue with that is it kind of opens us up to doing a less useful technique because it's a prettier device, right? Or it's cooler or it fits together better or whatever you want to say. Yeah. It blows. That's what I want to yeah. say. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think we've all taken the difficult airway course here and practice on the pig trachs and yeah, we can link to that every time. Literally every time I've, I've done it on a pig trach, I have gone straight through the whole trach. I was about to say, like, like I'm, looking <laughs> I'm looking at pictures that outline how to do this, and I'm looking at a picture of a needle going through, and I can totally see myself just going straight through the trach into the esophagus. And I just can't imagine it being easier on a real human well, being. anatomically, no. No? Okay? And there's a reason why. Because of the target, the place that you're targeting, the okay. cricothyroid membrane, is the way the laryngeal cartilage is set up 
is that in the back, it, it, there's a, it's almost like um, Dr. Rich Levitan talks about a cartilage in his cage. Okay, there's a big pad of thick cartilage on the back side of that of that, that laryngeal opening, uh-huh. and you have the the thyroid lamina. The lamina of the thyroid cartilage is really thick. Mm-hmm. You really can't. You have to work really, really hard to put something through. And if you've done this in the in the tissue labs, um, one of the one of the things you can do is you take that you know take the needle or take the scalpel point and just like tap that back wall of that cartilage. It is thick. You're not going to go through that unless you're really, really being persistently ignorant of what's going on around you. I also think you would easily go through it. I mean, I have literally gone through it every single time. I mean, I guess it's a pig. But in, in a human being, I just can't imagine that you it's a high stress situation. And although we're professionals and perform well under pressure, I can't imagine having the composure to get just the right amount of pressure to insert a blind needle into the trachea just hard enough to not go completely well, you're not going the into the trachea per se. You're going into the cricothyroid membrane. membrane. Yeah. You're, you're literally you're you're looking for that specific landmark. And you're only putting the needle into the point where you pierce that membrane, and then you're advancing the needle. Oh, let's try to be a little transparent here. Who so, here has actually performed one live? None of us. None of us. Right. So, I kind of get both points, like anatomically speaking. Yeah, but I mean, as sim, somebody who's sim and tissue labs. Yeah, as somebody hundreds. who's as somebody who's worked with Michael, I but can that see him finding anything. a way through that membrane in the back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, there's always there. Look, there's always somebody that's going to find something. I mean, what was it? A few weeks ago, they just had on the Internet. God love the Internet. The the NG tube that got passed into the spinal cord. Oh, those, those been have there. been around. Forever. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, no, well, this so, one just so came up. This was it, it was through a basal or skull fracture. Right. And Wait, it literally tracked into the spinal cord. Going in that person because anyway. they kept advancing it without actually checking for a flush. And it actually ended up in the calvary of the patient. No, but why anymore. would an NG tube be put in someone with the skull fracture? In the that's first a fair place? question. Yeah, that's a great question, isn't it? Then here we go. Get you. on that Google. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but, but again, like this big picture, like whether or not we've actually performed that. And again, we, we're not trying to speak from a position of authority. It's more just a conversation on to what might be a more appropriate procedure. But my thing is, it, like when we worry about how people would fail using a needle, and again, this is more of a devil's advocate position. We worried that we had the same concern when IOs switched from a jam sheet to a drill device. Like, we were like, people are going to drill right through the bone, and I'm not convinced that that happened all that often. I'm mm-hmm. sure it did. I'm sure people used the wrong size needles. I'm sure people went, went off center. Sure. So, it's again, and this is a question I ask a lot, is it more of a, is it a training or a will thing? If we do, if you're in a position where you can do, say, quarterly competencies, you can bring in an anatomic replica, either a, like, plastic replica or a pig there are some really, and bad, there are some really bad. nice models that are now coming out but the out. patients you're going to be doing this percutaneous trach on are not going to have great anatomy by default uh, probably not yeah you're right because the patients that you're going to be doing a trach on are going to have shit anatomy right but would you rather but would you rather do it with <laughs> but the, but again if they're going to have poor anatomy trach, it's you, a crank. you don't want to if you he's don't a wanna, do- he's almost a doctor. It's going to be a trach. But if you don't want to actually, <laughs> yeah, but it's here. It's a crank. He's a. Man. But if you don't, if you don't want to perform a skill, you're better off practicing it first. No, I, like I in a, in a better setting because because like if the idea is that your patients are going to have poor anatomy once you get to them, then the argument can't be then don't practice. Maybe let me let me give you my rationale. And maybe this is from my medical school training. I would much rather take the time with the scalpel, slowly go through and surgically dissect very yep. calmly to see what I'm looking at because chances are the, the airway I'm, I'm going to be doing this 
on a patient I'm going to be doing this on is going to have a distorted airway mm -hmm. that may not be what I've studied in a textbook or seen on, on other normal human beings. So take the time to surgically dissect through with the scalpel until I can perfectly identify everything or at least get a good idea of what I'm looking right. at as opposed to just jamming a big and that's fucking needle it, in. And, and <laughs> that's a good segue into the open technique because there is a there is a feeling out there and it's been said by a couple people out there um, that the, the knife fails less than the needle. And the idea is, yes, you can identify structures. You can you can do this in in a in a controlled fashion, and you can get good view, and you can find or good tactile palpation of that cricothyroid membrane with a with a scalpel as opposed to just blindly placing a needle. Right. Let me uh, add on to Dan. Imagine doing it to somebody like me who's got like a beard in the way, and you cut away and spread where I don't have a very prominent um, cricoid prominence. So you could cut away and then feel, oh, there's the prominence, and then there's your cricothyroid membrane. Much easier to find than on a person with a fat, hairy neck or and abnormal external anatomy. And for us, at least in America, a lot of us have fat necks that you're not able to palpate <laughs> the cricothyroid <laughs> so membrane a third. on. So while we're here, so let me take you through the, the, the idea of the open crank. We've talked about the percutaneous uh, crank with the needle, and it's more of a blind situation. It's more gadgety. Here's the, the common thought of what a, what a open crike entails. Basically, what you need is you need a scalpel, blade, generally a 10 blade. Um, you can use an 11 blade. It's a little sharp, but uh, there are some people that say a 15 blade works. I don't know. Most of the kits I've worked with and most of the times I've done this in cadaver labs and in training, we use a 10 blade. Um, you need some type of tube. Now, it can be a curved. It can be a shyly. Uh, 6.0 Shiley. It can be a 6.0 ET tube. It just leaves out a, lo a little, um, a longer tail, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so that you're, it's further away from the neck, and it's a little, little more trickier to to secure in the end. Um, but not the end of the world. Um, there are people that will say you can use a tracheal hook. Uh, there are kits out there that have them. Uh, the, what this does is this basically tents up the tra the uh, holds the trachea for you, so you can slide the tube in. Most of the cutting edge people, most of the pre-hospital world, has really bought into the idea of the scalpel finger bougie technique. Yeah. So what you need is a scalpel. You, a finger. You need a scalpel. You need your finger, and you need a bougie. And the idea is make one nice. vertical cut midline. And no, you're not going to hit an artery. You're not going to hit anything huge because the idea, if you if you look at the anatomy, all the big blood vessels are lateral. If you stay midline, you're fine. Okay, you find that thyroid prominence, that Adam's apple or the bump, and you just make a midline incision. Next thing you're going to do is you're going to open it. You're going to blunt dissect with your finger, and you're going to find the trachea, that cricothyroid mem membrane. Next thing you're going to do is you basically just put a, Put the blade through the through the cricothyroid membrane. Then you put your bougie down, and you could look at this on YouTube. Go to MCRIC, go to Airway Cam, go to any of these places. These guys have done it for real. They will teach you the right way to do it. Um, go to the Smack podcast. There's plenty of places that have this. MCRIT actually has a video of it of a live patient. We can put in the show notes. That's really good. Yeah, we're gonna link to this. Um, don't worry. Scott. And you're going to see Dr. it and you're going to go, oh my God, wow. That's <laughs> look, so please, much better than a please tell, me to, please tell me you're listening. <laughs> um, but, you know, the idea is, again, you know, you may, you, you're, you're exposing structures to the point where you can see what you're doing. 
Um, one of the good things with this is you do get kind of a pot. The people that I've talked to that have done this live, uh, when you get through that, that cricothyroid membrane, uh, you do get a little spray of, of trapped air and you get, you get a little bit of a blood spray. Definitely wear PPE, but here's the benefit. You know where you are. Then the bougie goes in, holds the place for the tube. You put the tube over, whether it's a 6.0 ET tube, a Shiley, whatever your, your program wants you to use. That's fantastic. Um, so what are the advantages here? The advantages are that it's pretty easy. Once you learn this technique and you practice it a few times, you really do it fairly quickly and positively. Um, you need less tools. Okay, there are commercial kits out there that talk about scalpel, finger bougie, or that are set up for that way. Uh, but you can do this, you know, if your medical director is cool with it and your regulatory agencies are cool with it. All you really need is a scalpel, a bougie, and a 6.02. Um, you know, you do have to practice with this. Uh, there is a provider risk. You got a sharp knife blade. You got to be careful. You're moving your fingers around. It's a stressful environment. Blood is slippery. Um, some of the things that we've talked about with this, where uh, if you get into a situation where you're doing this, once you make that first vertical cut, a lot of this is tactile. You're going to have to use your finger to find that landmark, find that membrane, and then put the blade on it. Is it a bad thing? Not necessarily, because you have that cartilaginous cage that Dr. Levitan talks about that keeps everybody in a good place. But just be aware of it. It's something that you have to take you know, kind of a little bit of respect for. Well, and that's where that mental preparedness comes in because one, before you actually go into this procedure, you have to kind of convince yourself that this is what you're about to do. So my, my question is we've gone through kind of the, the surgical crike and the, the needle crike, but I wonder when we think about like, like mental preparedness, how would we actually kind of talk ourselves through a procedure like this? Like how would we psych ourselves up to actually do this, this procedure? I don't know if you want to get psyched up. That's probably not oh, yeah. a good idea. <laughs> good point. Well, no, but you like chill out. But no, like when you're when you're trying to prepare yourself to do a significant procedure, there's a lot that you have to kind of mentally invest into it. So, is it more of a like a mental modeling thing, or is it kind of just relying on your training? I think there's the, the reliance on your training is one thing, but I think it's actually understanding the stress response that you have specifically. So. We all know that stress is caused by the uh, the uptick in our in our sympathetic nervous system. There's the the epi's flowing and everything's freaking out, and your fight or flight is up. Uh, and you have to kind of have a technique in place that will allow you to take that that nervous system down to a spot where you can operate. So you know you can go super crunchy granola with it and get all yoga breathy and all that other stuff that you can all use. yoga breathy like super crunchy. Um, <laughs> super crunchy. <laughs> you can you know have a discussion uh, like a timeout where people do for like, you know, typical airway prep um, or Which you, you should just, be you know, doing. You should be doing that anyway. But that timeout is designed to take everybody up who's up and bring them down a level and make sure everyone's on the same page. And I mean, as far as like the training goes, we all have it. We've all done it. Same thing as like, you know, doing CPR on an infant. We've been trained to do so. We just right. have to calm down. <laughs> I think high, high stress, low frequency procedures. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, I, I'm sorry. I, Go ahead. I think my concern generally is whenever we have procedures like this, whenever we talk about the stuff that we don't do often, that is a high intensity, low frequency thing. I, I worry that a lot of our providers approach it like the ultimate warrior running into the ring. That's exactly how where it's just it. like the music comes on and you just sprint in. <laughs> and you're da, like, da, I'm ready. By yeah. God, King. Yeah. <laughs> it's always that step thing too, like in uh, American Ninja Warrior, where like you have to go yeah, we have to jump from side to side. 
<laughs> but like everyone gets caught up. No. So it, but so if we're if you're a provider and you're you've recognized the situation and you're like, all right, like everything is all up. Is there a a I guess a best way to take yourself back, a, like to take yourself down a step, or is it just kind of you have it's, to be? I think a, it's a more personal thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, everybody that. has a has an individual way of calming down. Ah. I think for for like the most part too is that especially for like low frequency, high stress, that kind of stuff, we have to take our capes off, chill out you are the hero in the situation already <laughs> you don't have to make this a bigger deal than what it actually don't is. be a hero don't be but the don't goddamn be a zero hero. i think i think oh, sharing the mental nice. model is really important with your crew because you know we work in our tiered system or in places where you're going to work with other people on scene and this is something that's coming out you need to be sharing this idea with the group uh, one of the things that we do, you know, that I like to do and I try to do on RSIs and I've tried to incorporate in is sharing a mental model. Uh, OK, here's what we're going to do. Here's our plan B. Uh, if I can't do it this way, I'm going to do this. Um, if we can't, we'll place a superglottic airway. Uh, if we're having problems with that and we're not finding solutions, this is where our crike kit is. Um, when we get to that point. You know, I think, you know, it's important to say, okay, we're at this point. I cannot do this. We cannot get this. We're at this point. It's important for you to be prepared for this. You should be ready to do this. Um, I'm not saying it's got to be out and, you know, you have a Sharpie with a mark on where the patient's thyroid cartilage is. But I would definitely why not? do that. That would help. Shame on you, Dan. God. No, just uh, look, I would do it if I, if I thought it was something that, it, and I would you know, this is something again. This is a this is a Weingart Levitan thing that if you really think this is happening, making that mark is telling the team, "Hey, look, we may get to this point, and that's completely okay." But the goal is to get an airway. So I just want to go back to what you were saying about kind of keeping everybody on the same page. I think, especially for procedures like this, something I really loved about the OR, even though I have no plans to go into surgery, is you know essentially like the timeout right before you start the surgery. Make sure it's the right patient. Obviously, an EMS is usually just the one. Everyone's on page. What procedure is about to be done? The backup, like, you know, oh, we're going to do a laparoscopic surgery, but it may be converted to this if this happens, blah, blah, blah. And then right before you do everything, anybody have any questions or concerns? Guys, this is I agree. This is a basic teamwork model. Yeah. Like, you this isn't you're yeah, all <laughs> on the same, like, this is what we should be doing every day every patient every cardiac time. arrest management yeah it's not cardiac arrest every day though show you know throw, i'm gonna throw an iv and good i'm gonna spike a bag it's basic stuff we don't see it every day and that's the problem and i think it gets right. lost in the idea that like you know we have this high stress situation so none of it matters well anymore, and like, actually, actually i was gonna say too like every high stress situation i've been in like like this I, obviously i've never cracked somebody but you know I know needle decompression, for instance. It's always just been like, shut the f up. He's doing a needle decompression. No one say anything. Don't bother him. Blah blah blah. Well, like you're a pitcher who's and throwing like, a no hitter in the ninth inning. <laughs> yeah, really? No, no, I, I, no I one talked to him. I'm totally that way. Like when I'm doing something high stress, as far as nursing intervention, I kick all the family members out of the room. And if there's someone in there helping me, I tell them to stop talking because I need to concentrate. We just did this on I, an RSI. I straight okay. up do that. I had a patient. Yeah, that's just how I am. A, we have a BLS system who. We have a BLS system who, like, you know, they're not typically involved, but they're very good at bringing people to the hospital. Um, and we had to RSI this lady, and Definitely she... Definitely good driver. <laughs> and it was legitimately just, okay, they're going to do a thing, and everyone stepped back. But right. that it was the distinction between higher-level provider and lower-level provider, and there's no, there was no actual, like, team communication because it was a high-stress situation. 
But if this was like a lady who just had to go to the hospital, I had to throw a monitor on her. I'd have three people in my face. Right. Mm-hmm. But it needs to be. But it needs to be a team thing, and everybody needs to be on board with, or at least understanding where you're going with this. Um, I, I try to use this just because I've I've seen other people do it, and I've I've seen it taught, and it makes a lot of sense. It works a lot better than when I pull out, you know, like you said, that chest decompression needle, pulling it out. People go, whoa, whoa, what are you doing that for? You know, like. I think it's good to kind of talk to the to the team and say, okay, hey, listen, um, when we get them in, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to decompress the left chest. Uh, we're going to intubate and we're going to go and then see where we're at. Um, you know, in cardiac arrests, get get the EMTs involved. You know, hey, what's going on? Are we missing anything? Is there anything we haven't considered? I These- think um, part of the problem is that EMTs aren't provided with training on how to help yes. support medics when these procedures are being done. Talk more about it. We don't it. preach. I'm so yeah, like so here. a lot I don't know about any other state but especially in the state we're in Jersey. The best state. BLS does not <laughs> like we go through a BLS program and they go and then there's medics by the way. My and then God. that's the extent of it and we don't learn how to be supportive team members for when because a medic is RSIing, or when yeah. a medic yeah. is inserting it's a literally into another class chest. in New Jersey called paramedic, and assistant. it's not required. <laughs> and it and should that's be. the scary it should, part. It, it should be integrated to initial. It should training. be in the initial yeah. training. It should be. So just just so we're clear, the way that we can actually kind of get around this, and we've talked a lot about open communication and like how to describe the procedure, the way that it might be easier to solve this kind of problem and kind of bridge that gap between a basic life support, basic life support provider, and an advanced life support. Provider. Correct the EMT. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Just from across the room, scalpel, boom. Oh, javelins like darts. Like darts. Like, oh, like darts. So we want no, to so, be able to so, air this. Now so, stop. When you, so when you go through a situation and you have a patient who is critically ill, and it, it, again, it, it goes to Dan's point and kind of pitching everything forward, right? You go through like, here's the scenario that we're in, right? We have a patient who is very sick. Their airway is compromised. We might be in a position that we can't intubate, we can't ventilate them. So you're establishing, you're looking at the patient's airway, you know, all the other kind of concerns that we have for patients who might be difficult airways, short necks, beers, all that kind of thing. And then we can explain to the BLS team members, like, listen, the reality exists that I might have to do this. I'm going to do A, B, and C first, and we're going to try and intubate them. And if we can't do it, I'm going to have to take a needle or a knife, a scalpel, and I'm going to have to cut their throat and establish an airway. Do you understand? And then if they don't know how the procedure works, that's entirely fine. That's fine. I don't need you to know how the procedure works. I just need you to know that it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So I think that's one of the ways we can do that. We can kind of communicate that. And again, if you're in a situation where it doesn't happen, then okay, fine. Everybody wins. Um, but, you know, there's other situations where it should be fairly obvious that that's a situation that you're in. Like if you have someone who's got a fi- very significant crushing facial trauma, you're going to have to explain from the get-go. Like my first thought, like explaining to the BLS providers, like my first thought is I'm going to do a cricothyroidomy on this patient. I'm going to try and convince myself out of it. I'm going to try and intubate them. But you need to be aware of what's happening here. Right. And and this is a, another thing that um, if, you, if you haven't followed um, Rich Levitan, uh, he talks of the surgically inevitable airway where, you know, it's like, look, we know we're getting to this point. They're going to need a crike. We're going to try something else. Maybe we can oxygenate in some other methodology. But in the end, this is where we were going in the first place. And again, that goes back to me not saying that this is not a failed airway. This is just where we were going. Right. And this was kind of an inevitability after some time. I think we also have to have an idea of like team roles in this. So 
yeah, the 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 potential for uh, Crike is going to happen. Do you understand that's what's going to go down? You get the nods. You get whatever it is. Good. You're going to do the bag. I need you to regulate the oxygen. I need this person to Absolutely. have the, the nasal airway. You have to distinguish what it is. Instead of just being like, this big thing is going to happen. You've got to break down to the load so that you exactly. can focus on what you need to do. But it's not even just that you have to focus on what you have to do. It takes the chaos away. Correct. Just remove the entire, you know, the stress out of the situation. Do your breathing, get crunchy, but then tell me what these people have to do. Right. I agree. And well, that's the whole idea of a shared mental model where you can assign roles like, if, you know, we're sitting here and a crike's going to go down, okay, Ed, we need suction ready. Jess, I'm going to need you on the monitor watching the sats. Mm-hmm. Um, you it's know, kindergarten Kevin, teamwork. Kevin, I need vascular well, access. That's what it is. It's, it's kindergarten teamwork. Well, listen, I right. would like you to you know, please Mike, build you're me gonna a, do, uh, a Play-Doh You're going to do the cut, you know. Yeah, right. I think, I think build a, me this Play-Doh model. You will have the green. I think a, Whatever. Good, I think a good model used for these high-stress procedures and patients would be something called CRM, which is crew resource management. Which is more prevalent in the aviation industry, particularly in HEMS, what I do. But it is completely translatable to any scene job because it's all about leadership and workload management, adaptability, and closed-loop communication. So you've got to have everybody on board with what you're doing because everybody has to know what everyone else is doing because that's part of being an efficient team. So I recommend anybody looking up crew, look up crew resource management and see if you can implement that into your um call routine if you want to call it that but uh, that's I, I would recommend I'm just so happy that you've entered that you've officially entered the podcasting foam world you called it hems <laughs> I'm so what I'm do other people so call it tingly it's spinny bird. flying thing spinny flying <laughs> EMS <laughs> air aircrafty stuff crit care in the air crit care. so oh, in, so in the end God. you know if if this is something in your in your you know, armamentarium, if this is something in your scope of practice, you owe it to your patients to be proficient with the tools that you use and your medical director specifies and what your your regulating body allows. Um, you should on air, every airway assessment, you should always assess for difficulty. There's plenty of things out there. Uh, we're going to link to a couple of classes in the show notes and some resources for you, but you should always be looking for difficulty. Uh, you should always have a plan B. Okay. An endotracheal tube is not the be all and end all it's oxygenating and ventilating the patient. Uh, if you have this in your scope of practice, you should know where it is and it should be a part of where you're focusing, what you're thinking of every time you intubate a patient just in case and you'll get your head in a good spot. And it's also a thing that you're going to want to be able to practice as much as possible. If you don't Correct. Have, if you don't have that, those facilities available to you, you ha- you're going to have to find a place that has them. Right. Now, if you're working for a shop that you know doesn't offer that type of training, and you, are, you are also able to buy uh, 3D printed models. Oh yeah, of, there's tons, of, you know, of trachea's you can actually use. This is the beauty of FOMED. I mean, there are people that have made these models out, and um, you know, these things exist. And just knowing that anatomy cold is going to save you so much stress. Yeah, and just having again, you know, mental modeling and preparing for this actual procedure. Lots mm-hmm. to talk about. Lots of information that came out of here today. Um, it's something that is not practiced a whole lot, but definitely probably should be at least practice before you actually do it out in the field. Let us know what you guys think right over on Productions on Gmail, also at over in Productions on Instagram and Facebook, over on EMS on Twitter, and you can get this download anywhere you listen to your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Alexa. Play the Overrun. Do it. I'm going to do it all the time, every single show. Thanks for listening. For the Overrun Podcast, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. Mike DiFilippo. Kevin Mazza. Anna Ryan. Jess Mastercola. And we'll talk to you next time. Get home safe. Bye.